We are continuing with the Kingdom of God series, and we are continuing with chapter 3, which is called Major Biblical Themes. Now, chapter 3, Major Biblical Scenes, uh, Themes, not Scenes. <laughs> uh, chapter 5, we're going to look at Major Biblical Scenes. But um, Major Biblical Themes has a part A, B, C, at least a D and an E. Last week, because I reviewed some of what we did in chapters 1, 2, and 3A, uh, we did not get all the way through chapter 3C. So this is actually chapter 3C, small 2. Uh, and I'm going to start where on your outline where there's Roman numeral 3. Please flip over, though, first and look at, uh, on the back, um, look at the 15 titles of the chapters. It, I want to remind you that that's subject to change. Uh, as my thinking continues to develop, and I'm studying a lot as we go, and praying and thinking, uh, trying to find a way to organize this material. But uh, more importantly, most chapters will have an A, B, and a C, or an A and a B. Most chapters will not be just one Sunday. So uh, this uh, chapter 5 is what I'm trying to lay groundwork for, which is a survey of kingdom history in the Hebrew scriptures, or what we uh, most people call the Old Testament. Uh, many, many argue that, that it should be called the Hebrew scriptures because what we actually call the Old Testament started in Exodus chapter 19, uh, after a couple thousand years of human history. So uh, in any case, I'm going to go through the what we call the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, but I uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about most people don't have enough scriptural background to understand that message till we lay some groundwork. And the groundwork I want to lay, lay in chapter 3 is some major biblical themes, which we've been doing. Uh, we looked at God's eternal decree. We looked at the, the eight aspects of all covenants, and the Bible is a series of covenants. And, and now we're looking at covenant history, but we're going to look at the idea of the redeemed people of God versus the people, the enemies and the haters of God, which is a major theme of the scriptures and so forth. Then in chapter four, we're going to look at biblical imagery, something that John has taught us a lot about in the last couple of years. And we'll talk a little bit about why that became lost to the church in the, in the uh, 1920s and uh, why most people don't know how to read the Bible as, as a piece of literature in and in a historical narrative and with symbolism and images, and most people are, uh, overly literally interpret the scriptures, which we're going to touch on today because that was an outgrowth of a new idea that hit the church in the 1800s called dispensationalism. So um, with that in mind, look back on the front page to Roman numeral three. And we're going to pick up right there, and I'm going to try to be quick about points A and B, and maybe even C, because um, we covered those last week. So first thing I want to say is we, we are looking at covenant th theology, and what it covenant theology amounts to is that whether you know it or not, when you read the Bible, you actually have preconceived ideas about how to interpret the Bible. Whether you know them or not, they are actually controlling what you get out of the Bible. And so you can actually read the Bible and get the wrong message. Uh, in human analogy, much like, let's say there's uh, sometimes relationships 
husband and wife or or what have you, sometimes relationships will actually get to the point where there's maybe so much animosity and hurt and suspicion and so forth that you just, whatever the person says, you interpret it wrong. And that can ha- happen a lot like in marriage and so forth or, or in any close relationship. So uh, a, a, a paradigm or hermeneutic is, is kind of a set of lenses which you knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, bring to your interpretation of the Scripture, uh, and it has a great impact on what you actually read into the Scripture and get out of the Scripture. Now, in theological terms, most people call it a hermeneutic. Um, I like the word paradigm, paradigm. and the definition there of a paradigm is a set of assumptions, concepts, values, and practices that constitute or make up a way of viewing reality for the community sharing them, especially in an academic discipline. And so what you might say is uh, there have been four major paradigms in the history of Christianity for looking at the scripture, the Eastern paradigm, which eventually gave way to the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, the Latin paradigm, which eventually got in, in became the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, of course, the paradigms were changing over the centuries, but they're not this, necessarily the same as they were the first few centuries. Uh, the, the Reformation paradigm, or the paradigm of the Reformers, and then the Evangelical paradigm, which, are, which began to emerge shortly after our Civil War. And probably some parts of it, like Pietism, began to emerge before the Civil War, but not much before the Civil War. And um, most ancient interpreters of Scripture and most Reformed interpreters of Scripture uh, had a general way of looking at Scripture called covenant theology. And uh, that's um, now, uh, with that in mind, I want to say that not all covenant theologians see things exactly the same. And not all anti-covenant theologians or dispensational theologians or whatever see things exactly the same. There's all kinds of nuances within the camps. And there's a third paradigm uh, that some people call New Covenant Theology uh, for interpreting Scripture, and that's getting more popular, uh, and so forth. There's So, um, in terms of covenant theology, there are two basic categories or types of of biblical covenants. One is theological covenants, and the other is federal head covenants. And I'll I'll reverse how I talked about it last week. Maybe that'll be helpful. Uh, What you might call federal head covenants are covenants that God made with a father figure who and their descendants, their seed. And that would include um, Adam, Noah, um, Abraham, David, etc. There are other smaller ones and so forth, but those are actually, in most cases, the federal head covenants. If you look at the eight elements of covenant that we covered in chapter 3b, you can clearly see all eight of those aspects in God's talking to, say, Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and 18, where the covenants with Abraham are spelled out, 
all eight aspects. So if you look at the Mosaic Covenant, uh, you can see all eight aspects. Even, even the Adamic Covenant, you can see all eight aspects, but you have to look a little closer. Whereas the other kind of um, covenant is what people would call a, a ther- theological covenant, and that's uh, ascertained by taking the whole of Scripture and rightly dividing it or rightly understanding it, or rightly uh, handling it, so that you see that uh, the covenants are, are all spelled out. Now, in the uh, theological covenants, there are schools of thought but if you really study them out, you'll find that they're, they're arguing v- really small shades of nuances. It's a matter of just arguing how you're going to organize your thoughts, really, more than it is actually a disagreement. But some will say there's one overriding covenant in the Bible. Others will say there are two overriding covenants in the Bible. And still others will say there are three. And I'm going to actually work backwards in explaining them real quickly from three, two to one. The people who say there are three covenants in the Bible will call the original covenant with Adam, usually they'll call that the covenant of works. Uh, I prefer to call it the Adamic covenant or the dominion covenant. We'll, that will develop as we go why. But um, then they'll say there's the covenant that God has made with his people that he's saving and redeeming called the covenant of grace. And they'll include all the Old Testament after the fall of Adam uh, to the end of time in that covenant. But then they'll say there's a third covenant, and we're going to work backward from this one. The third covenant they'll call the covenant of redemption. And what they mean by that is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had an eternal covenant in their community of fellowship long before God began the time-space continuum and began the creation. That's spoken of most clearly. It's funny because most people who talk about the, uh, the covenant of redemption don't use this verse, uh, but there's lots of verses about God's f- eternal decrees and his, his foreknowing and, and, and declaring all things and so forth, but they all add up to that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had an eternal covenant outside and above time uh, within themselves. And uh, my favorite verse on it that's not usually used much is Hebrews 13, 20, or 13, yeah, 13, 20, which talks about how the blood of the eternal covenant, and I would prefer to call the redemptive covenant the eternal covenant, but the, the, it, what they call the covenant of redemption is that uh, the father made certain promises, covenant promises to the son, uh, and the son made covenant certain promises to the father that the son would come to earth, become a man, uh, take on a human form, and live a human life subject to suffering and temptation and, and all the things that humans are subject to, yet without sin, to redeem uh, or make atonement for mankind. And the father, therefore, was obligated to provide the son a people, and the son was doing that to give the father a people. So the son gives the people to the father, and the, and the father gives the, the, uh, the people to the son as his bride. And uh, Genesis 24, if you care to ever study that, is, is a perfect literary masterpiece of the whole Bible in one chapter, 
where Abraham, who represents the father in the historical narrative, it actually happened, it's real history, but God worked in that history to tell us a story of what of redemption. And uh, uh, well, let's let's get into that in a minute after we finish with this whole uh, the the um, the whole redemptive covenant. But the the idea is this existed from all eternity. Okay, Does that that makes sense. Okay. And the Holy Spirit had roles to play in it and so forth. And as uh, Genesis 24, is, we'll get into that now, is the idea that, uh, sorry, I kind of didn't handle that so polished, but hopefully you can track with me. In Genesis 24, Abraham, who's, who's a, a type or a foreshadowing of the father, uh, calls his servant, who's a type and foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons, if you look at Francis Chan's book, The Forgotten God, or look at any of our studies on the Holy Spirit, one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is so undervalued and underestimated in the church is because he actually, his ministry is to point to the Father and the Son. And so in Genesis 24, a chapter he wrote, uh, he is actually portraying himself as an unnamed servant, um, an Abraham's servant. And so... Abraham asked the servant to put his hand under his thighs. We won't go into what that means more literally. But uh, and he, uh, they make covenant. And the, the servant's covenant is that he's going to go to a, a distant land, speaking of the Holy Spirit working in the world, and find a bride for Abraham's son, who uh, is Isaac, who's a foreshadowing of Christ in, in a number of ways, like in Genesis 22, when uh, he's called, Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. We spent a lot of time on that one before, and God, Abraham says God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And uh, the Jewish Bibles get that one right, but the English Bibles don't. But um, then uh, this this. The servant goes with uh, 10 camels full of all kinds of precious gifts and jewels and so forth, speaking of God using the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, in all kinds of ways to open up the eyes of the bride to, because she's going to a land she does not know. When you, when you sign up to walk with God, there's no way to actually get where God wants to take you unless you have enough trust in God to say, okay, he... I'm going to sign the covenant and follow you. I don't know what it means yet. I don't know where we're going yet. I don't know what your priorities or values are going to be, but I'm making a fundamental decision to stop driving the boat. You're, I'm going to follow you now. That's what it means to become a Christian. Uh, you're, you give up. Uh, you, you give him everything. Your, what your goals for, for career, for vocation, for ministry, and you say, God, I'll walk with you. Uh, how you want to bring me to these things. And until you're willing to do that, you almost make no progress in terms of the, the wholeness and the redemption and uh, all the things God wants to put your life back together are really subject to that first step in the covenant of saying, I'll be your disciple. I'll follow you. It's no longer, I'm, I'm no longer driving. I'm no longer eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and deciding for myself what is right and wrong. So uh, then when you do that, emotional healing, intellectual healing, relational healing, all these things begin to start growing in your life as you walk with God, 
But the bottom line is he's God and you're not anymore. That's called conversion. Uh, that's what's so often not happening among our people today. And uh, so in the theological covenants, the people who say there's three will, will separate out this redemption covenant that eternally existed. Then they'll say how it got worked out was, was in the covenant of grace, which they would say started with the fall of man usually and goes to the end. And they'll say there was a covenant of works that existed with Adam and Eve and that they had to obey one commandment if not in all commandments have uh, things to obey and things not uh, things you can do things you can, they have they have boundaries they have laws they have parameters and then there's sanctions for disobeying which included death spiritual death that eventually left a physical death and brought death into all the creation now i actually believe that the original covenant with adam itself was a covenant of grace adam didn't decide to, to birth himself, to create himself. He was given life and given a wife and given the garden by grace. And all covenants have, have laws for obedience and disobedience. And it was only by the grace of God that he could, that he could have obeyed it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And even Adam's salvation were, was, was by that. Because if you analyze the temptation that the serpent brought, he undermined first the word of God. He undermined, he spoke to Eve, undermining three things. The word of God, the authority of Adam through, under God, and, uh, he, and he brought into question God's character. So he's, when he says, indeed, has God said, you have to remember that God only said that to Eve through Adam. God never spoke that directly to Eve, but God had told Adam that you can't eat from the tree, and Adam had told his wife. So you'll find that uh, one of the foremost important things that, 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 that happen in conversion is that you come back under human delegated authority that God has put in the family, in the church, uh, and in uh, your vocation and employment and, and in the civil government and so forth. So Adam, you know, the serpent first questioned God's word as delivered through her delegated authority, and then he questioned God's character and that God was trying to hold her back from something. And if you look at it, all temptations and what it means to be an unbeliever versus a believer is rooted in that. Eve would have had to trust that in her spiritual authority that he was speaking God's word to her and trust that God's word was true, right, and to be trusted for its motives. She would have had, in other words, she would have had to overcome the temptation by faith, by trust in God's word. So all salvation is actually by faith, and it's all based in grace. So I, I would say it's all one covenant. However, in teaching the redemption covenant, the grace covenant, the Adamic covenant, frankly, they, uh, they give us um, ways to organize our thoughts more than they are opposing views. 
they're just different ways to organize your thoughts more than they are opposing. Although the people who adhere to the different things will have little fights with each other in academic articles and so forth. I listed here uh, an article that I found online called The Covenant of Works by Wayne Grudem. It's on a, uh, a website. You can just Google it that way. It's on a website called um, Monagers. How do you say that word? Monagerism. Monagerism. Monergism. It's an excellent website, uh, kind of from a reformed way of thinking of all kinds of articles and resources, but they actually just lifted it out of chapter 25 of Wayne Grudem's book called Systematic Theology, and I read it in both last night. First, I read it in the article they put online, then I went and read the whole chapter 25 of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology again, and it's part of chapter 25, uh, and he defends the idea of the covenant of works better than anyone I've ever heard, as he often does. I, I thought, well, the way he explains it, I can buy the idea of the covenant of works, uh, whereas the way some explain it, I'm not as thrilled. Thirdly, point C, covenant theology normally contrasted with dispensationalism. We'll talk a lot. Uh, chapter 12 will be A, B, C, D, E, and F, G, and uh, when we get to that, we'll talk about current theologies and concepts that are holding the church back from uh, uh, from accomplishing our kingdom destiny and purposes, and why we're living in what many call a reductionist kind of Christianity and a reductionist approach to the Bible. And in fact, um, we'll we'll talk a little bit about why the reductionist uh, approaches draw the big crowds. Uh, the reductionist approaches always will draw the bigger crowds because they have certain elements that are much more popular to, to our human flesh. And uh, we'll look at that a little bit when we get to chapter 12. I don't want to say anything more about dispensationalism and, and covenantalism other than dispensationalism uh, started in the 1830s or so with a guy named J.N. Darby and uh, Eventually, by the 1890s, it was it was kind of the major way of thinking in evangelical circles. And by the 1920s, it had pretty much obliterated through the Schofield uh, Reference Bible and the popularity thereof. It had pretty much obliterated the the entire thinking of the reformers and and uh, their whole co uh, sovereignty of God and covenant and and this kind of thing. Um, I think dispensationalism breaks up your Bible. I think it, it gives you a very reduced vision of who God is and uh, definitely a much smaller picture of what the church is supposed to accomplish now in, in a time-space world and therefore leads to uh, doing church with a kind of a shortcut method, you know, where you can get big crowds to hear messages but, the, but you bypass the whole thing of individual discipleship and individual character building and spiritual fatherhood and, and all the things that it really takes about to bring Christ-like character. So um, with that flip over, we're going to go to point D. Uh, there's, a, there's a continuity between the covenants in covenant theology, and that's really its best, uh, its best gift to us. Uh, I, I remember... Um, that when I, of course, grew up in the Lord, I first came into uh, the charismatic movement and some uh, exposure to Pentecostal churches and that kind of thing. And therefore, I was only exposed to dispensational theology for the first year or so that I was a Christian. 
But I had this hunger to read scripture, and unfortunately, because dispensationalism tends to emphasize the New Testament but not the Old, I remember by the time I was uh, a few months old in the Lord, I went through kind of a period where I had no job and no responsibilities for about four and a half months. And I was literally reading eight to 10 hours a day was a nice season in my life. I wouldn't wouldn't, uh, encourage you to stay there. But uh, during that time, I read the New Testament 10 times, but I only read the Old Testament one time because all the churches I knew about, all the things I was reading, uh, emphasized the New Testament excluding the old instead of the instead of the the them being intertwined and continuous together and so but even then i started questioning you know the major paradigms before i even knew what the word paradigm meant and epistemology and worldview i i began to say something's wrong with this this isn't this isn't really what the bible's saying and so thankfully in 1975 i heard a message by a guy named paul petrie who uh, who the message was called the kingdom of God and the lights came on in such a way that I, I realized right in the middle of the message, I just got my old Testament back. And, uh, so the, the advantage of covenant theology as part of this whole understanding of the kingdom of God is you'll get delivered from what I hear all the time. I've recently been t- discipling several young men who said, I tried to read the old Testament. I can't, I keep, I can't get through it. I can't, I, I tried to read the old Testament. It's boring. Uh, and so forth. And, uh, and it's because you don't have the right set of lenses to look at the Old Testament. Uh, believe me, the Old Testament is so exciting. I, I can hardly stand it sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, um, so Galatians three nineteen through 22 says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds to it conditions or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. Most people would say the covenant of grace has started with Genesis 3:15, the promise of the covenant of grace, but that Abraham was the first major federal head, even they wouldn't include Noah usually. And the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, the Ten Commandments, and the case laws that go with the law, which came 430 years later with the Mosaic Covenant, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, or that is by grace and choice and election and favor, uh, unmerited, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, again, Romans 2.8, that you're saved by grace, working through faith, that is trust in God's character and God's word. Um, so, um, as uh, we see in this, that when you when you make a covenant, you can't add to it or subtract from it. And as you really study the Bible with that with that scripture in mind, what you'll see is the progressing covenants through the federal heads, Adam, you know, uh, Moses, and so forth, they, they actually fulfill other covenants. In fact, the whole, God's whole understanding in giving what's called a Susandry covenant, that is a federal, uh, you know, the a conqueror Lord, first announcing who he is, announcing all the benefits he's provided, and then 
uh, announcing to the people he's granting covenant to all his mercies and blessings and so forth. As you get that uh, structure and you understand, what you see time and time again is that man, the, the recipients of the covenant, could not fulfill the covenant, but failed in the covenant. And God himself didn't abrogate the covenant or nullify the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant requirements that man was supposed to recover. In other words, God said he would do certain things, and he required man to do certain things, and man failed in what he was supposed to do, but God did what man was supposed to do. So, so that the covenant wasn't nullified, it was rather fulfilled. A classic example of this is in Matthew 5, uh, 17 or so, when Jesus says, uh, don't think I came to abolish the law, as in dispensationalism today, but I came to put it into force. I came to fulfill it. And it's not that we're, uh, that the law is abrogated, but the law is completed when Jesus says it is finished. All the requirements of the covenant of, of Moses are fulfilled in Christ. And this is all the way through. So, um, point E, Jesus, the eternal covenant, guarantee of a better covenant, fulfillment of God's one covenant, is what I just alluded to. Hebrews 7 says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, remember the Susan Dree covenant structure of the, in, that we gave in, in chapter 3b, the eight aspects of covenant. Jesus fulfills them all. Hebrews 8, 6, but now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent service to us or grace to us. That's what ministry means. Uh, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. But it doesn't throw out or nullify the previous covenants because that's not allowed. It f brings them all to fulfillment, as we'll see as we continue on in this series. Uh, Hebrews 13, 20, I've already quoted a several times, so you can read it for yourself. Moving on to point F, covenant, grace, and kingdom. Um, whenever people get away from the concept of God's foreordained eternal covenants, what some call the current covenant of redemption, which he worked out in human history from what people call the covenant of grace, whenever you get away from that perspective that the Bible is all one, written by one author with one set of major themes going through it, like any good piece of literature, and that God has been working through all of history for one covenant purpose, uh, the reason the Bible doesn't uh, give us the history of the Native Americans and the history of the Chinese and the history of the Swedes or whatever is because God's view of covenant is God eternally has a, a, a covenant, and he has a purpose, and that purpose is tied up with the people that he's making covenant with, and they're always a nation of people, a group of people, a family. The idea of an individualistic approach to walking with God is so anti-Bible, it's very pro-American. I pulled myself up from my, the bootstraps. I did it my way. I, I'm not under any accountability or any authority. I do what I, you know, I... I keep going to get counsel till I find the counsel I like. Uh, that whole approach to God is just so unbiblical. And uh, 
so whenever you whenever you get into that you'll you'll get what happened in the time of Christ in the time of Christ all there the synagogue system had grown up through the Roman Empire and so there were Jews uh, who had be, you know that began to be scattered in 722 BC in the first uh, the first dispersion, the conquering of the northern kingdom. The second dispersion, the conquering of the southern kingdom, uh, the, Ju- the kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. The further dispersions caused by Alexander the Great conquering them in 333 B.C. The Romans conquering them in 70 B.C. Every time that happened, more and more Jews were planted in more and more cities across the Roman Empire. Less and less were actually in, in, in Israel. And very few pioneered, you know, what happens is whenever God is restoring his people, there will only be a small group of people who want to go all the way with that. In the, when, in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, about 3% or something like that of the Jews came back. Most theologians estimate as low as 20,000 Jews actually came back to Israel. So what kind of grew up, I can't develop this all, but in what's called the intertestament period, the period between Malachi and Matthew, besides the synagogue system growing up all over the Roman Empire, Judaism was actually making converts because people saw the bankruptcy of the humanism of the Roman Empire, and they saw the Jews as having a, 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 a much better way of life through the, through the Ten Commandments and the case laws, through the moral law. They saw that as a superior way to live. So many, what was called Hellenistic Jews, were being converted and so forth. But what this uh, period is sometimes called Second, Second Temple Judaism. And during this time, what here began to happen is this. People began to expect that God was going to send his Messiah to fulfill all his promises. But they began to look for, uh, they also were looking for Emmanuel, God with us. They didn't realize that those were going to be one and the same person. But what they thought that was going to happen is that God was going to come in a cataclysmic way, bringing an army of angels, uh, t- touch down in Jerusalem and, and slay the Romans and establish the Davidic geographical political kingdom again. Okay, which actually was always meant to just be a foreshadowing of the real kingdom that God is bringing through the church. But that, whenever God's people get shallow in their theology, their expectations of what God wants to do here now in a time-space world begin to take shortcuts and get more shallow, and they basically think we can only be saved by a top-down cataclysmic event. When the kingdom is a bottom-up that works from the inside of people, changing their hearts completely and making them uh, lovers of God and fulfillers of the law, and therefore placing them in covenant family so that they become a people, and they work from the grassroots out to change salt, leaven, and redeem all of culture. Now, the Jews had no room for that kind of a Messiah in their thinking, as many Christians today think the only hope for the world to get better is the second coming of Christ. But The Bible says, Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the whole Bible, says, the Lord said to my Lord, God the Father to God the Son, Jesus himself quotes it about himself when he's talking to the Pharisees. It's directly quoted, that part of it, seven times, other parts of it, other times, it all adds up to over 15 times it's quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
and his feet have always been, even in the Old Testament, the God's hands and God's feet and God's body was his people. He worked, in fact, God's biggest beef with Israel, if you study it carefully all through the Old Testament, is they kept getting turned inward and taking care of themselves, and they weren't using the things of God to, to redeem the nations. They were, in fact, prejudiced against the nations. Most, most Israelites in Jesus' day hated the Samaritans and hated the Gentiles, and they were called to be the redeemers. It's hard to lead someone to Christ you don't like. You know, part one of the things that you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna lead alcoholics, drug addicts, people who smell bad, people who can't read, uh, people who come from broken homes, people who are emotionally troubled, if you're going to lead them to Christ and disciple them, the first thing is God has to change your heart so you love them, so you love them enough to invest your life in them. Uh, you're not gonna lead someone to Christ you don't like. It, you know, not to keep harping on this, but one of the tragedies of our day is that we have separate white and separate black churches because when they have the freedom not to be together, blacks and whites don't want to be together. And uh, God wants to change all that. And that, in fact, is the message. If you continue to, everyone read. You, you get all this teaching about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, about how we are dead in our trespasses and by grace we're saved and so forth. And then they stop at verse 10. But verse 11 through the rest of the chapter, verse 22, talk about how God is making all peoples into one new people. <laughs> and uh, if, if you're going to buy into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 about by grace through faith you've been saved and so forth and you've been seated in the heavenly places and so forth, then you must buy into the continuing argument that that necessarily means you are in family with who's ever in family with Jesus, no matter what their color, education, neighborhood, or anything else. And I believe that the Jesus saying in John 13 and John 17 about making them one is saying this, the world will never take Jesus seriously as long as we aren't, as long as our churches are so homogeneous. Until our churches are truly integrated, uh, of people with different colors, socioeconomic status, whatever, uh, we'll never get anywhere. And that was the—that's how it was in the time of Christ. Like the Jews did not like the Gentiles, they didn't like the Samaritans, and they thought the only hope were oppressed by these Romans. And if you, all through the Bible. There's this, the, the, we're going to study how there's the enemies of God theme through the Bible, and the enemies of God start with Cain killing Abel, but they progress through history to being embodied in, in empire states who oppress God's people. So the Jews saw the Romans as being basically the outworking of Satan and his minions. And they were confirmed in that in 44 BC, uh, half a century before Christ, almost, when Caesar began to call himself King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the Son of God. And these were the titles that you had to call Caesar and when you, when you worshipped him and gave him the sacrifice. At first, they made an exception for the Jews for a number of historical reasons, but eventually they didn't. And that's why, why the Christians began to be persecuted in the time of Nero until the time of Constantine for about 260 years 
uh, Christians were killed simply because they wouldn't say Caesar is the son of God, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. It's a, they wouldn't pay homage to Caesar and to, and to the government as our savior. So what I'm trying to say is this, whenever God's people get shallow, devoid of the spirit, uh, wrong paradigms of theology, they begin to believe that the God, only, God good can only come about when he rescues us in a cataclysmic geopolitical visitation that conquers militarily the enemies and so forth. So um, that's very important, and that's why after three and a half years of discipleship, and Jesus basically trying to, you know, the parable, of the, there are seven parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 that all the disciples had heard and that all overturned that top-down cataclysmic view, the mustard seed in particular and the, and the leaven, those two in particular. But the idea that the, the, the kingdom is going to work in a small group of people who God's going to change from the inside out, and that will cause uh, views of women to be changed, views of marriage to be changed, uh, views of economic systems, all of it will grow gradually out of, of that seed of the kingdom working its way through a people that pe become a city set on the hill, the light of the world. Uh, and any goals for the church less than that, by the way, is, is uh, pathetic. But uh, that whole thing was, was the opposite of what the people of God were expecting. And the disciples had the religious systems of their day so deep that in Acts 1, 6 through 7, uh, a couple verses I'd rather skip. <laughs> you can't, uh, there's verses you'd go, I wish I didn't have to deal with this. The disciples actually say to Jesus after the resurrection, when he's telling them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which he defines as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 4, and 5. In verse 6, they say, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And what they mean is, is there going to be a geopolitical Israel like in the days of David? And are you going to restore temple worship and all these things? And they, what they're saying is, Jesus, we missed the whole point of what you taught us for three and a half years. I'm glad I'm not Jesus because I would have just broke down and cried or or I would have ripped their beards out like Nehemiah or something. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Nehemiah is famous for ripping the beards out of the people he's ministering to. <laughs> uh, try that in modern times. But uh, you got to have people with good beards that you can get a hold of. <laughs> uh, so uh, these little ones you can't really do much with. But, um, you know, Jesus just says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And he basically says, after Pentecost, you'll get it. <laughs> and uh, let's move on. And I'm like, oh, Lord. you know, they that their very question shows that they were actually still more in the religious culture of their day than they were in the kingdom biblical culture of Jesus. And their expectations of what God was going to do and how he was going to do it were still external, shallow, that God could only change things by a second coming, a geopolitical thing, and conquering the Romans and setting up a new nation within the nations, when God was going to set up a new nation within the nations. 
And he had already said in Matthew 16 to them, I will build my church, which was in contradistinction to Moses's church. And so it's no longer going to be a geopolitical nation. It's going to be a nation whose boundaries are spiritual, whose boundaries are covenantal, whose boundaries are a people of God, a family of God that are just as just as real and tangible, but there's they're going to be everywhere in the earth. They're going to fill every city. There will be cities in every city. There will be lights in every dark place and so forth. Now, um, lastly, hopefully I can get through as many of these as possible. I'm going to run over a little bit, but oh well, I want to get through. The, lastly, point G, the benefits of eternal grace covenant theology which is kind of my whole name for it. Uh, seeing the Bible as one covenant or three interrelated covenants or two, however you want to organize your thoughts. Um, I wish I had time to read from Luke 24, but hopefully you know those passages where it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, the three major sections of Scripture that Jews called Tanakh, uh, he, he explained everything concerning himself. So Jesus is actually teaching the disciples that every aspect of the Old Testament is about me. Okay, so you're going to have to, to really see the message of the whole Old Testament, you're going to have to put on a set of lenses that says Jesus is on every page and he's king of everything and everything's a foreshadowing and, a, and a point, everything points to Jesus. The... The symbolism points to Jesus. The characters are types of Jesus. The uh, the laws, uh, the, the seven sacrifices of the Levitical system, the number seven is perfection. And so they none of them could ever really atone, but together, put together, they give us the full flavor of what Christ's one atonement was going to be, and so forth. So uh, all of it is about Jesus. Now, some benefits of seeing the Bible as one king bringing one kingdom from Genesis to Revelation is first and foremost uh, understanding that the cross is part of your calling. We have a kind of Christianity today where it's a big deal. You'll hear preachers all the time say, I was eight when the call of God came on my life. And, and I was 12. And, and it's interpreted in a very, like, I want to do what I want to do narcissistic sense. But the calling is on the other side of a cross, and it's on the other side of a life that consistently, daily, deeper and deeper, more fully and more complete, says, not my will, but thy will be done. And God will be lovingly give you crosses. It's not an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. And it's not about uh, a kind of leadership where you get to be up front and speak or you get to be uh, and entertain the troops or or any kind of thing. It's not any kind of vision that has you in it. The more you come to God's vision, the less of you there'll be. And the more servant leadership, the more you're, you'll be investing in those who God's called you to love and serve. That's the vision. The, um, and so you, you, you have a dominion theology which wants to conquer the world, but it wants to conquer the world by serving so your highest goal as a husband is to lay your life down and your goals down and everything else to serve your wife. 
your highest goal as a father is to lay down what you'd like to be doing <laughs> and serve your children. Your highest goal is a pastor is not the things you can be seen doing publicly, but the things that only one person you're serving here or there behind the scenes can see. That's the advantage of covenant theology. It causes you to, if, if you want, if there's anything in you that cries out, Jesus, I want to know you, I hope there is, because that's a sign of being born again. If the, in, uh, that should increase with the baptism in the Spirit. It should can increase with grace, reading the Word more. Every time God takes you deeper, there should be more in you that says, God, I want to know you. And there's this little problem with covenant theology and kingdom theology is you, you, he wants to, you, that to be in your heart, and you'll know him on the other side of the cross. The more you die, the more you'll live. The more you lay down your goals and ambitions, the more he'll give them back to you but much more sanctified. Uh, there's, you know, there's no other way. Hebrew scriptures, second reason is it covenant theology will empower you to love the Old Testament. You'll love the Old Testament. You'll be like, yeah, I need to read Galatians today, but man, I want to read first and second Samuel again too, <laughs> you know, uh, because you, it's, it's one, it's one seamless book. Um, it gives you a unified interpretive principle that yields a consistent understanding of the Bible. It makes important the church in both Testaments, God's dealings, God's law and society, his miraculous faith, zeal for the Lord, all of these things become from Genesis to Revelation for you. And you'll love characters like Jehu who said, and as he's riding his chariot and says, stand back and see my zeal for the Lord. Um, you know, uh, Ahud and God, I used to read the story of Ahud to my boys who, uh, when he stabbed the, the king of Moab, he says he was so fat that the, that the, that his blubber covered the blade and the handle and, to, and then his refuge ran, uh, ran. And I'm like, that's a great story for boys, isn't it? <laughs> uh, maybe not, but, uh, I used to read it to him anyway, but, um, you know, it, uh, the Hebrew scriptures give you give you your Old Testament back. Um, those you'll help you see God as a masterful composer of one book. It'll give you God's kingdom people and His purposes back. You'll you'll see the scripture more in terms of a people and less in terms of yourself. Uh, what really sells today is is messages that tell you how you can overcome this or that problem in yourself but it's not in any bigger picture. Uh, it helps you see God and his attributes magnified and glorified versus the modern view, which his God's attributes are actually re reduced and debased. They, over and over, you hear theologians saying we have a man-centered theology today and a man-centered gospel. And what, what really builds churches is what, you, what God can do for you in a very man-centered message. And uh, covenant theology will deliver you from that. It will uh, deliver you from a schizophrenic God and, and the one God of all eternity will become the center of all your thinking, all your passion, all your desire, and the, the integrating principle of how you live. Um, it restores uh, 
Covenant th theology restores the earth through understanding that God always intended to incarnate himself, that when he created it, it was very good. And as he redeems it, he's making it through the very good God that we have named Jesus Christ. He's making all things very good again. And that, um, you know, you get ki all kinds of Christians who have all kinds of legalisms that are usually about the physical world, like you can't eat or drink a beer or whatever. But covenant theology will give you an understanding that physical things are very good and they need to be brought under the lordship of Christ. Uh, finally, covenant theology restores the gospel uh, and it restores the, the whole idea of grace. Uh, quote from uh, J.I. Packer's book called Covenant Theology, the gospel is not properly understood till it is viewed in a covenantal frame. Um, so many today, a burden I've had the last couple weeks a lot for our church is that we're coming in a, through a time where so many people are from broken homes or from homes that stayed intact, but the, especially the dad was emotionally unavailable uh, or whatever. People have a lot of insecurities, a lot of hurts, a lot, a lot of damage on the inside. Sometimes it's self-inflicted through our sins or whatever. But understanding God's fatherly, eternal grace, you weren't, you know, if, if you could imagine a healthy family, which none of us have had a perfect one, of course, we're fallen people, but if you could imagine a perfect uh, redeemed family, really mature in Christ, you weren't, you didn't choose to be born into it. And when you get in trouble as a kid, which I hope, especially with boys, I, I never like a boy who doesn't get in trouble. If there's not orneriness, then there's a problem. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it's, um, that, that's another whole subject. But as you, you didn't, as you're ornery or whatever, you don't, you, you may get disciplined, you may get corrected, but there's never any question that you still belong. You're still my son, and you'll always be my son, and I will always love you. Covenant theology gives you back that, and it gives you that, that back at the foundation of your relationship. If I, when I minister to young ladies today, the most noticeable thing that they're struggling for is a view of God's fatherhoodly acceptance that says you're my beautiful princess, not because of what you do, but because I chose to have you born into this family. And if you, I wish I, this is Father's Day, if I was given the second message, I, uh, which I'm not, I would probably stress uh, my three points about fatherhood. The first one is unconditional acceptance. You can't actually discipline or instruct your kids until they have that foundation of unconditional acceptance. Really, uh, you, you know, um, you were chosen to be a part of God's covenant and his covenant people and his covenant family. And you may need to confess your sins and, and receive a word of correction to restore good fellowship with that family, but you'll never not be a part of that family. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that you probably need to confess your sins, repent and change, and different things like that to, to restore the fellowship, but the offer is always there. It will never go.
And even when you're in your worst tr- uh, behaviors of waywardness and neglecting God and, and selling out for trying to get this and that your way instead of God's way, he still is always saying, you're my son, you're my daughter. I love you. I died for you. I chose. My choice is never going to change. I'm not a fickle covenant God. I'm an eternal covenant God. And I'm inviting you back through confession and repentance into fellowship with me. That's actually what we do at the communion table. Amen.